The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Well, we are, we are going to have a, an opportunity to join together this big conversation that's going to happen on Sundays with sermons and on, in small groups, but, but also here. Uh, in hopefully a unique way that can add into uh, the, the broader conversation that's going on. Some of you might have remembered or might know that I, I've talked about my grandfather before. He has a huge, played a huge role in my life. I mean, he bought me my first bow, which I totally got in trouble with immediately. Uh, he bought me my first set of golf clubs. We had lots of great time. We went fishing together. We had, we had a, he was a, a huge figure in my life. One of the th- ways he was a huge figure, though, is that he was the guy that I could go to when I had questions. See, I'd grown up in the church, and I'd heard, I knew the stories, and yet there are those times when you start having questions. How does this work out? Or I don't totally understand that this aspect, that this thing that I heard in church, or this doesn't seem to be working out. And the, one of the best times I had is when I'd go up, and I'd have an opportunity to, to sit at the table with my grandfather, or to, or, or to go sit outside on, uh, on a rock or something like that, and just begin to ask questions. I have binders full of stuff as he began to help me kind of understand some, some things. And, you know, sometimes I, what I needed was just information. It was insight. I just, didn't, I just didn't get some things. Sometimes there wasn't necessarily an answer that would make a particular situation go away or get better. But what I needed was guidance. I needed wisdom. Someone who had walked before me who could begin to, to show me the way to walk. Sometimes I just needed an example. And I think for me, it was the, the three of those things is what made, was such a powerful force in my life. As I began to see the example of someone walking with Jesus, who, who could articulate and speak into some of the questions I have, but it could also point me uh, in the way to go as well. It, it's what opened the door for me to encounter God in, in powerful ways in my life, both in that present moment, but also uh, down the road. As I began to understand then, I, I leaned into some things and began to understand what was going on. Well, that's how we grow, isn't it? That's how we begin. That's how we do faith. You can't do faith on your own. It's not something that you could just kind of pull into your own private experience. At least not the faith that we just see in the Bible. It's something that it, we have to uh, engage with within community, and certainly with those who have gone before us, those mentors, sages, uh, people who have a little more experience than we do. Um, I know that I've been blessed to have some of those people in my life. And, and what I want to do over the next few weeks is, is begin to introduce some of those people to you as we engage some of the questions that I think can, can arise uh, out of uh, these chapters that we're going to be looking at in John. Uh, next week, we're going to be uh, hearing from Renee Notkin. Renee is a uh, pastor down at Union Church. Uh, she used to be part of Tuesday Evening Worship, which is uh, we're, we're uh, in that strain of Tuesday Evening Worship. And I can't think of anyone better to talk about spiritual formation and, and what does it mean to grow. I think a lot of us, we long to grow, but we go, how? So we're going to, have some que- we're going to be able to engage Renee around some of those questions. The week after that... I'm, a uh, mentor of mine, Daryl Smith, is going to come down from the FERS. He used to be director of a camp that I worked at uh, and is doing, directing a number of other things at the FERS now. But we're going to engage questions around, you know, what does it look like to live with hope? Especially in the midst of disappointment, in, this, in the midst of trial. Because I know for some of us, we would love to encounter the living God, but we, we bump into things where we go, how can God be real when he didn't seem to come through? When I thought I was being faithful, but something happened. Well, Jesus talks about that. He says, guess, guess you're going to have trouble. But I, I want you to know that I've overcome the world. I want you to know a peace that is going to move beyond whether everything lines up perfect in your life. Because as we know, 
that rarely ever happens. And yet there's a piece that goes beyond simply um, how much we can manufacture kind of the circumstances around us. Well, tonight it is my great pleasure to kick this thing off by inviting our pastor emeritus, Earl Palmer, to come up and join us tonight. Would you welcome Earl as he comes on up? Well, Earl, we are delighted to have you. Uh, I think one of the highlights for me is I think over the last three years are the times when we've been able to get you in here and just have a Q&A. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. I know that for me, I, I remember real fondly uh, when you were still here before you stepped down, that the, the times when I was able to sit in your office and just and pick your brain and go, well, what about this and what about this and what about this? And that was a rich time uh, for me. I, but since stepping down at UPC, you, you're, not, you're keeping busy. So share with us a little bit about where you're at and, and, and what you're doing now. Well, I, my, uh, right after I finished uh, being the senior pastor here uh, in uh, 08, October uh, 26th, uh, then uh, yeah, almost we formed Earl Palmer Ministries to sort of uh, encourage uh, and enable me to have a kind of a wider ministry in the country and other places. And, we have, and, I, and then I have a study assistant too, uh, Kurt Heineman last year and now Daniel Triller. Is my study assistant this year. We uh, started that ministry, which is mainly our kindling muse on Monday nights, the first Monday night of the month at the Burke Museum Cafe. We met last night on Dorothy Sayers. And then a theological dialogue on Tuesday mornings. But right away, uh, the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. asked if I would come and be the preaching pastor in residence there at that great church. And I said, yes. And first, it was just for a few weeks or months, and now it's become over a year. And I'm, uh, but I, I think I'm going to close it off in the end of June because I'm hoping that they're getting a pastor now. They're they're looking for a pastor, and it's just been uh, fabulous. I love it. I go, I spend most of my time in Washington D.C., and then come back here once a month. So that's about it. But uh, in Washington, it's been totally exciting to also have a chance to see what, what God is doing in a lot of Christian ministries there, International Justice Mission, I'll be with them this next week, and also uh, their uh, retreat. And then this last weekend, Daniel and I were at Annapolis with the uh, chaplains and faculty at the uh, West Point Academy, I mean the uh, Annapolis uh, Naval Academy, and that was just uh, marvelous to be with uh, their uh, a, a spiritual retreat for faculty. And, in fact, this next week I'll be up at Annapolis again doing a, uh, with a midshipman on the, the uh, screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis. So I've been doing these sort of things, too, and writing. And I'm busy. I've been a little on the busy side, but, but it's been fun. Well, we're glad you're here tonight. Uh, here's how we're going to do it. I, I, you, some of you know that I uh, ask for questions, and I have a bunch of questions. Some of them are listed in the back. Uh, I'll go through a few, and then uh, some of them I'll ask if there's follow-up questions, and then I'll, and I'll take a break and a pause, and, uh, and I want to open it up. If you have a question, uh, be bold. Uh, just You can stand up and then ask it, and we can go from there. Uh, but otherwise, we'll, we'll move through some of the questions that we have written down. I think it will be a rich time. So uh, let me pray for us before we get yeah, started. Yeah, let's do it. Lord, we're so thankful to have Earl again with us, and we ask as, as we uh, seek to just ask questions that you will be able to speak uh, into our hearts, you illuminate our minds, that you, you guide uh, our thoughts uh, to your glory, in your name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, Earl, very first question, we know you're a fan of Lewis and Tolkien, and um, the question is, if you'd be any character in Lord of the Rings, who would you be? 
but you, actually, you know what? We got more important things. Uh, we know who you would be. I mean, uh, pretty obviously, uh, Bilbo Baggins. I think. <laughs> no, I. Yeah, I like. Bill was a good, yeah, decent no. guy. I like, I like say, uh, Frodo better. Oh, Frodo's better. <laughs> Fair enough. He's a little bolder of a guy. And he's a halfling. He's a halfling. And we, you know, I'm short, so I like <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but... Yeah. Anyway. Well... He, to be fair, Earl, you know, one of our staff members here decided to have some fun, and so he, he started, he, you're not the only guy. So, you know, I got thrown in, in the midst of there, you know, the, the, the ruggedly, <laughs> you know, the, the ruggedly handsome yet tormented loner who needs a shave desperately. Uh, but, you know, just to think, uh, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just me. I mean, we, you know, Kelly and Sarah, don't think it was just a guy's thing. We knew, elven princesses. Uh, we decided well, not to not put up... We, Kyle is, was tree buried. We decided not to put him up. It's a little too disturbing. <laughs> you wouldn't sleep well tonight. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, I'll kidding aside. No one's a Balrog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'm trying to think. Was that Dave? Uh, that Dave Moore. I don't know. Um, hey, listen. One of the questions that came up, though, was around this idea of faith and doubt. And I think that uh, the person that was uh, talking to me about this was saying, you know, especially I, they were leading a group. And within the group, there was a sense of uh, not feeling like they could ask questions, not feeling like they could uh, have doubts or even admit that or, or bring that up. And so could you speak to us about the role of faith and doubt and how do you even talk about questions and doubt within the context of faith? Um, my sense was that there was a fear that if you begin to bring that up, that faith would suddenly just fall apart. Uh, can, you, can you speak into that? Uh, you, well, yeah, I, th I think uh, some reflections I would like to make. The First of all... Uh, be careful. Sometimes uh, a person that has a strong doctrine that there should be no doubt really has a doctrine that God is fragile. Mm. And, uh, and that, fra that fragile God is deeply offended by our doubts or deeply offended even by our mistakes or our, our disobedience. He's not. Uh, the, the New Testament, Old Testament portrayal of God is that he's not fragile. In fact, the interesting uh, book on doubt really is Job. And Job is challenged by his friends, his three friends, who first are very attentive to him, and then they finally start to give him advice, uh, which is horrible, that he, uh, he could only grovel. He, he, and he has no right to ask any questions of God. But Job insists that he wants to ask questions of God. Oh, that I may find you, that I may make my case before him. They say you have no right to do that. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that at the end of Job, God lines up the three advisors and says, you should have listened to my servant Job. Uh, God was not offended by the doubts of Job. And they're thoroughgoing doubts because Job has, there's, uh, as I see it, the three kinds of doubt. Moral doubt which is Job's feeling that I had a, I've got a raw deal here. It's not fair. And then there's intellectual doubt. Intellectual doubt is, I suppose, Thomas's doubt. Is it real? Did it really happen? If the man that I know, Jesus, if he's alive, I'll believe. But I wasn't there. I've got to be sure. And that's an intellectual question. And then there's interior doubt. That's maybe the worst of all. And that would be uh, Peter's doubt of himself. Uh, I know that Christ won a victory. I have no questions of that. But what about me? I denied him three times. So you take those three kinds of doubt, and uh, and then maybe they're more even be beyond that. But the the question is, it's a part of of my life journey, and the New Testament is not uh, is not uh, jarred 
or nor is our Lord uh, upset by doubts. Uh, the, and I, here's an example. The greatest faith statement in the Bible comes from John the Baptist, who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and makes this profound announcement of who Christ is and baptizes him. And the greatest doubter in the New Testament is John the Baptist. Are you the Messiah or shall I look for another? Uh, you can't ask for a more despairing mixture of moral doubt, intellectual doubt, and interior doubt. Have I made a mistake? Should I have done what I've done? And, and yet our Lord's response to John the Baptist's question and doubt is uh, to call him the greatest prophet. And then to show to John, because John's in prison, when he asks the question, and show, to, says, show John what I'm doing, and then go back and, and tell him, uh, take no offense, trust me. And you know what's interesting to me? I like what Helmut Thielica says. He says, John the Baptist is the man of greatest faith in the New Testament, and he's the greatest doubter of the New Testament. And because he, he doubted the most, because he knew the most. Now, it's funny. If you don't know very much, uh, then your doubts may not be as substantial. But if you know more, and if you've made more affirmations, and then your doubts are more substantial. But uh, they're all, both substantial and insubstantial doubts, I think are a part of your journey. And I, my approach is to write it out and uh, keep gathering information, keep gathering uh, uh, witness to, uh, uh, to the faithfulness of God and his goodness. Uh, wait it out and, uh, and hold on. And I think this is what John the Baptist does. And I think this is what uh, Peter does. He doubts, but it's interesting, isn't it? He, Peter is feeling so down after the resurrection of Christ that he says, I'm going fishing. It's not bad. Uh, I, I'm, uh, and, and, but the other disciples say, we're going with you. Yeah. And then our Lord finds him. Our Lord does the resolution in his own time, in his own way. I'm not afraid of doubts. I've been with the pastor long enough and watched a lot of people in their journey. And I think the, the journeys that take you through your moral doubt, which is where you're disappointed in God, the intellectual doubt where you're wondering if it's true, and then your interior doubt of yourself... Am I able to, to understand this? I don't think they're bad. I think they're a part of the journey. And so, in a way, they're a part of faith. Here's a great line from Telica. He says about John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist has the, the most doubt, and yet in his doubt, he has the most faith, because he doesn't say, is he the Messiah? Should I look for another? He says, are you the Messiah? Surely I elect for another. And so Tilika says, he asks his question toward Christ himself. That's faith. Yeah. Though he's saying his doubts to Christ. Yeah. That's what Job is doing. Yeah. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might make my case before him. Yeah. I am not happy about the way this is going, yeah. and I want to argue with God. Yeah. His friends say, you have no right to do it. And yet God says, oh, yes, he does. Yeah. No, I think uh, doubts, yeah. when they are pointed to Christ, are faith. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything to say. 
No, well, I would say, you know, what, the thing I appreciate, about, especially that last comment about to God, is I think I, what, that's what I see in the Psalms. That that's what they're doing is that there is a sense, of, and this is when we're talking about not just a, a set of beliefs, but we're talking about a person. And so there are times when, I, you know, there might, I even might have a, uh, some doubts within a context of marriage, but if I take them to Shannon, then they can be resolved. And I think what I see in the Psalms is I'm looking to God. God, what is going on? Yeah. Why do the wicked prosper? Yeah. And, and it strikes me that when you, what you run into then is a more robust God yeah. than what you knew before. Yeah. Um, well, I know that there was a couple people that had questions with that. So I don't know. Is there a follow, are there any follow-up questions to that? Yeah. Maybe, Earl, would, could you reflect, uh, hopefully this will be fair, could you reflect on the sense that sometimes when we look at Bible characters, we think uh, Joseph or something, that we think, or Jacob, that we think we can only see, they, they have to be pillars and there's nothing wrong with them because they're in the Bible, therefore they are prime examples, and yet we start looking at them and we realize uh, that, that they're broken people yeah. as well. Can you talk about the, the sense of whole life characters and how, how that guides us? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question because I think there are no non-flawed characters in the, uh, in the biblical account, which is remarkable in terms of ancient histories. Uh, one, uh, one scholar made the interesting observation with regard to the difference between Jewish poetry, uh, which produced the, the prophets, produced the historical narratives of the Old Testament, and Egyptian hieroglyphic, which tell the story of Egypt. But there's no flaw in any Egyptian pharaoh. Even in the art, there's no, there are no warts. There's nothing in any way flawed. There, and they, and they, in Egyptian hieroglyphic, they evidently won every single battle, but we know they didn't. Now you come to Jewish history, and you get an amazingly different kind of history. You have a history that points up the flaws of the characters, every single one. The, you know, the greatest man in the Old Testament has got to be David, and he is the worst man in the Old Testament. He arranged with treachery for the murder of a man who would have died for him. Can you think of anything worse than the treachery of, of David? For which he's called into account by the prophet Nathan, and for which he repents. But the, there are no heroes in the Old Testament that aren't flawed. And we come to the New Testament characters, and they're saints. St. Paul? St. Paul never forgets all his life that he assented to the stoning of an innocent man named Stephen, who died with amazing heroism. Yet St. Paul... Uh, he assented to it. He voted for it. And he never forgets that. He always brings it up, even though he was forgiven for it. Yet he always brings it up in his statements of his own faith. I am the least of the apostles. I persecuted the, I persecuted the, uh, the, the church. And uh, Peter, is, as you know, uh, is a flawed hero. And, and we already referred to that. And you name any New Testament character you want. And I think that is the beauty of the New Testament accounts. And the Old Testament accounts is that there is, when the, and the New Testament historical writers borrowed that from the Old Testament historical writers that said, we're going to portray these people as they really are. Yet, I'm not saying they don't make heroes out of them, but still there's that sense of realism there too, which is quite re remarkable, really, when you think of it. In other words, the, the doubts are there, and they're a part of the journey. Uh, now, why? Because even in Genesis 1, one of the good decisions God made in Genesis is to, is to create us. And the second good decision he made, notice he called it good. In fact, very good. He gave us dominion. That's the first freedom word of the Bible. In Genesis 1, he gave Adam and Eve dominion, freedom. We get to name the animals with that. We get the beginning of science with that. 
and the beginning of the human crisis with that. Because right away in the troubled garden, we make bad choices with our freedom. And yet, there we are, and there it is. So that freedom is a part of the journey. Karl Barth has this interesting description of the church. He says, we go through history in belief and in uh, unbelief, in understanding and in misunderstanding, in obedience and in disobedience before the lofty good, the gospel that's given to us. But notice that portrayal of the church. Even the church is a mission field. I mean, the church is in crisis. The church, the, the believers, uh, you think about it, there's no letter in the New Testament written apart from the problems of the church. And so I love that. I just love that realism that faces up to our journey of doubt and our journey of faith. Faith and doubt go together. So how do you, how do you not get stuck in doubt? How do you begin to reconcile some of those doubts and questions that come up? Work with them. Uh, ask questions. Uh, check, uh, study the text. Uh, pray. And do what John the Baptist did. He made the best move he could make. He couldn't. He was in prison. After all, Herod has him there and he's going to be beheaded. And he sends his disciples to Jesus in Galilee. Herod, uh, John is uh, now in a prison in Judea. And he makes the best move he can make. Are you the Messiah? Shall we look for somebody else? I mean, can you think of a more poignant doubt from a great man? And Jesus honors him. He does not say, oh, man, what a guy. Now he's, free. Now he's doubting me. No, what a great man. And in fact, he says, what did you go? When you went out to see John the Baptist, did you go see a reed bending in the wind? No, you saw a great man. In fact, the greatest of all prophets is John. Jesus honors him. And then he says, now, and then it's interesting. Then the text says he went and healed people. And then he says, tell John what you've seen. And he gives him a hidden quotation from Isaiah 61. Tell John that the poor have good news preached to them. That the captive hear about release from prison. Tell them that. And tell them not to be embarrassed about me. And you know, I think that satisfied John. No, bring your doubt to Christ. Uh, and, and to your friends. Uh, again, aren't you glad that when Peter, in his doubt, just said, I'm going to Galilee to go fishing, and Thomas, James, John said, hey, we're going with you. When you've got a friend who's in doubt, uh, don't abandon him. Stick with him. Uh, help him through it. Uh, bear witness to your own discovery of how God's faithful. And you know, isn't it interesting? The resolution of doubt is mainly the discovery of two things about God. His goodness and his faithfulness. The two great themes of the Psalms. And the goodness, that's the love. And the faithfulness, the durability. He's not fragile. See, God is not fragile. And that's why I think it's very important that we in the church should not uh, create a myth that if you really had faith, you wouldn't have doubts. Here's a Pascal quote. Absolutes are impossible for us. Therefore, you can never have absolute faith. You can never. You always know as much of yourself as you know, uh, trusting as much of Christ as you know. But you never have, only God is absolute. Our faith is therefore always relative. It's always a part of the journey of our human uh, freedom. And trusting in the faithfulness of God and his goodness. And I think those are the biggies. The big thing is to trust and to discover the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And I think, uh, and then put your weight on it. Now, one other thing I always say to people with regard to doubts, uh, 
put your weight on it. Uh, uh, Billy Graham told a story about how his dad was afraid of flying and flying on airplanes. And so Billy Graham said, well, there's only one way to cure it, and that is to actually get on a plane and try it out and see if it works. Uh, sit in the seat and go. He said, his dad said, well, I would never sit in the seat. I'd always stand. No, you have to sit. You have to strap yourself in, in fact. Uh, and then you'll see if it can fly. And I think there's a lot to that. Try it out. Put your weight down and try out the trusting and see if it's better than, than uh, holding everything in suspension. We're, we're going to move on a question, but I feel like what I want to affirm within this room is that that robust faith that encountering God is not a matter of being perfect, mm -hmm. living the perfect sort of life, or never having any questions or any doubts. And I think some, we get, we come under the illusion somehow within the church that, and maybe you might be in here and you feel like, I can't, I don't belong in church because I have questions, I have doubts, and I, by the way, I'm a broken person. And so the reality is that we all are. We are all saved by grace, and, and we are all living in a place between faith and doubt, and yet God is continuing to show himself to be robust enough mm -hmm. to deal with the real realities of us. I like that. I love, so, the, I love the word robust. That's the word to use. Yeah. Uh, um, it, God is not fragile. Uh, the God of, joke of, jo of Job's advisors is very fragile. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's a sad, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's the sad commentary on their faith. Yeah. They think he's so easily offended that he will simply fly off the handle. God is not easily offended. Well, and to pick up on what you were saying, I feel like as I've, a lot of times this comes up in the context of disappointment and tragedy and hurt. In, in our lives. And yet what I've discovered is a God who is uh, more good than I ever knew mm -hmm. before on the other side of that. More robust, more good, more faithful than, I, than, than the God that I uh, knew before um, because I've seen him in the context of difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's an interesting point, too. I think with regard to moral doubt, and moral doubt probably is the most uh, painful where I'm, I'm doubting God. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, went through that in, and he wrote about it in his book, A Grief Observed. Uh, he said, uh, I, know God is, I know God exists, but I'm wondering if he's good. Mm. And in other words, beginning to doubt the goodness, beginning to doubt uh, the love, beginning to doubt um, uh, that, uh, that God cares about the suffering. And then the make, to make the discovery that Jesus suffered ahead of us. He suffered uh, too. He went on ahead. And that's where the cross of Christ becomes probably the profoundest answer to moral doubt, where I'm doubting the goodness of God, is, uh, is, to, is to consider his love that uh, went on ahead of us. Yeah. One, of the, uh, one of the other questions, that we had a number of questions around um, hell. And I think there was somebody I know who wanted to maybe ask a question to be able to frame it up, and, and we'll go on from there. So well, you, why don't you stand on up and... and Actually, yeah, I'll bring that over since you're right here. So I was actually just talking to another pastor about this today, so I'm curious what you think. Um, kind of coming at it from two angles. Basically, in school when we learned about religion and different religions around the world, I couldn't help but notice a lot of similarities between a lot of them. And so I got to thinking, could this all be the same God and the same Jesus, but just in different cultures? And I'm not, I'm not sure. It's just a question. Um, and then sort of another completely different angle, but um, 
one of the most wonderful people I've ever known um, that died um, in his 50s, you know, way too soon. Best person I ever knew, but um, he wasn't Christian. And so, you know, I don't know where he is. So kind of just those questions of like, I know, I know Christ to be true and I know that to be the most accurate and what works for me, but I wonder if it's the be all end all as a lot of Christians say it is. Thanks. Thanks for the honesty of that. Uh, I think the uh, the good news of the narrow way, I, uh, that's the way I've often thought of it, which is John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Some people have, th- have thought of that as a warning. It's not a warning. It's a simple indica- indicative. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's one of the great I ams. Only Jesus Christ has done the three things that are absolutely essential for the salvation of the world or anyone's salvation. Only Jesus Christ has taken human crisis and tragedy and absorbed it. The, the hurt uh, the, and, and the, the evil that created the Holocaust, the evil that, that harms people maybe in, in, who are in already down and out and are being badly treated by that human sinfulness, Jesus Christ at the cross absorbed it. He took it. And no other religious leader claims to have done that. Uh, it certainly is not claimed for anyone else. Jesus Christ is the one that has absorbed human sin. Secondly, he's the one who has disarmed and, uh, disarm the power of evil, the power of the devil. This is the great claim of the cross. And Jesus Christ is the one who has defeated death. And he defeats death by taking it. It it killed him. That's why the Apostles' Creed makes it so clear uh, against the Gnostics who said he didn't die, he only appeared to die. No, no. He uh, crucified, dead, and buried, descended into the place of death. He really died. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, took our grief upon himself. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This amazing, mysterious text in Isaiah 53. Jesus Christ did it. He dared to. That's a line from C.S. Lewis. We could not. He could. He dared. He did. He took it. And he then conquered sin, the power of sin in life, by absorbing it. And that's why you and I cannot do that. We cannot be messiahs. The most dangerous thing that ever happens is if we think we have to be the one who who creates forgiveness or redemption. We can't. We can point to it. We can't do it. He did. And he did conquer the the power of the devil. That is the battle of Armageddon. That is the defeat of Satan that that Martin Luther uh, wrote about in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word shall fell him. Jesus Christ is that one word. And third, He's the one who conquers death. Now, that means that if anybody is going to be saved, it'll be because of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the good news. Jesus Christ is very generous. He's more generous than we are. It's better not to create a theory about who's in and who's out. Leave it in his hands. I love a a line from Lewis. You might as well leave it in his hands because it's there whether you leave it or not. Uh, He is the one who decides. He is, we don't have a theory about the future, we have the Lord of the future. And that is better than a theory about the future. The Christian church, in my view, has always got into trouble when it created elaborate theories about heaven and hell. For one thing, we don't know. 
it's beyond us. I wrote a commentary in the book of Revelation, and it's very interesting. In the book of Revelation, nobody's in hell now. There are people that were on the edge of the lake of fire, but they're not there. As long as God is speaking to you, you're not in hell. Believe me. You'd be in hell, as Lewis says, when the last voice you heard is yourself. When you are in utter darkness by yourself. That would be hell. No one's there now. And that's in God's hands. Uh, but it is true that there are consequences to life. But there is the best news, though, is there is a Redeemer. And the Redeemer uh, has absorbed sin, conquered death, and conquered the power of evil. Now, if anyone is to be redeemed, let's not have, and here, as I as a Christian theologian would say, let's not have some theory about, well, just so you're sincere in what you're doing. No, no. Uh, then that means you're your own redeemer? You're going to absorb sin? Try it. Try absorbing even your own sins. Try absorbing somebody else's sins. You can't do it. And you just cannot do it. And he can. And he did. And therefore, we have good news. That if there, is, if there is any redemption, it's because of Christ. Now, it's in his hands how he chooses to do it. And I agree with Lewis, there are going to be many surprises when you go through the door. Uh, and uh, I think Lewis is right. Uh, there will be many surprises who we see there. Uh, maybe some people that we thought we'd see there, we may not see. And some people we didn't think we'd see are going to see. Because he gets to decide. And I find that is very comforting to me. Now, what about that person that you loved, that, that you said died, you felt not even in faith, maybe in the crisis of faith? And by the way, how do you know how he died? Uh, be careful. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing you can do, and I'll give you a, one of my favorite theologians, Helmut Tilke, put it this way. There are, there are limits to what we may say. There are no limits to what we may pray. You have a right to pray. And, to, and by the way, your prayers count. Uh, your prayers are very important. St. Paul said it. He said, I thank God that for you, with your prayers and the choreography of the Holy Spirit, it's worked out for my, my help, he says to the Philippians. Your prayers matter. So you have a right to pray. Cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Now, here's a care you have. Someone that you, that you care greatly about this in the crisis of faith. Pray for them. Uh, ask for God's blessing. Ask for God's forgiveness. Ask for God's help. You and I have the right to do that. We don't have a right to build a theory. That was what was wrong with universalism. Universalism says oh, everybody is automatically saved because God is so good. Well, I'll tell you, God is so good, that is for sure. But my theory of universalism isn't good. It's just a demeaning theory. It demeans the dignity of every human being. And it says people are really automatons and they're all just programmed and... Uh, and some people thought, oh, that's predestination. No, it isn't. Uh, God's predecision does not take your freedom away. Nor does it take, here's a great Bart line, God's uh, predecision doesn't take your freedom away, and it doesn't take his freedom away. Now remember, God can do what he wants to do. And that's what our Lord is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one that does the redeeming. That's our good news. Frankly, I'll tell you something, I am more comforted by knowing that the Lord of all the earth will do rightly, than for, for me to build some theory about heaven and hell uh, that maybe comforts my group and then <laughs> puts some other people in a bad spot. I'm just not going to play that game. Because I can't. Uh, the, uh, here's a great line. The dividing line is hidden from us. So, respect that. Uh, 
And yet, we get to preach the good news that because of Jesus Christ, there is redemption. And our freedom is preserved. And we are held accountable. Okay, that's life. We already knew that anyway. Does that, does that help? I could do some follow-up questions on that. Um, you covered most of it. But is there, are there questions in the room that you want to ask? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe her theology itself needs to be uh, uh, the, the theological per, uh, the, uh, the theological final point needs to be uh, pulled back. For one thing, um, I would say this to that person. I would rather trust the goodwill of Jesus Christ with your parents than anything else I could say, because I know he's good. And I know his graciousness and his goodness has been shown at the cross. He said to a thief who was dying, Amen, I say to you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's without baptism, that's without church discipline, that's without anything that thief did except, Lord, help me. Wow. That's how good Jesus Christ is. And you know, also on the cross, he said to, uh, as he was uh, being crucified, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He said that to, to Roman soldiers. Are they in heaven? He said so. He forgave them. Our Lord has the power to do what he wants to do. And to me, that's the exciting good news about who Jesus Christ is. And uh, I would rather trust my family or anybody else I know and certainly all people who ever lived and whoever, wherever they are. And that's no excuse for me not growing in grace and trying to share faith with them because I want them to experience that joy right now. Does that make sense? But I would rather trust him than any theory I could come up with that might comfort him. Well, of course, it's pretty hard to beat Henrietta Mears. She was, uh, <laughs> she was one amazing woman and... Uh, it's funny, I had an evening last night on Dorothy Sayers, another amazing woman. woman. Uh, but Henrietta Mears, I'm going to do a kindling muse some night on Henry Mears, because Henrietta Mears, she uh, is true. Uh, I, I don't know how to beat that. We were in a meeting, and uh, we were all young people going off to seminary, and one guy, I thought it was impudent. He said to Dr. Mears, she was in her maybe late 70s at that time, and he said, Dr. Mears, if you're going to do everything over again, is there anything you'd change in your life? And, and again, without even one moment of hesitation, Henrietta Mears said, I'd trust God more. Well, that's pretty hard to beat. Trust him more. Uh, and again, trust his goodness. That's what I'm saying really with regard to that family that you're worried about. Trust God's goodness. What else are you going to trust? Where else are you going to turn? Uh, and I think that is good news. And, uh, and then I guess I'd want to grow more. I love another little saying that, me, me, that I've used here at this church before that meant a lot to me. Father O'Callaghan, a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest who uh, prayed in a Pearl Harbor uh, memorial service after his ship, after almost uh, half of the guys in his ship were badly injured. And he got the, uh, the United States Medal of Honor for the, his bravery on board that aircraft carrier. And at his uh, memorial, at the memorial service, he said this, the end of the, of the prayer of, in the memorial service, he said, Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, as we grow in age, may we grow in grace. And I love that line. And I would say, 
Yeah, I hope that as I grow in age, you know, growing in age is not up for grabs. Everybody's going to grow in age. But growing in grace, that may be up for grabs. And I, you know, I got grandkids. I just left them today. That's why I had to come a little late tonight. I have dinner with my grandsons. And I, wouldn't it be awful as you get older that your grandchildren or your son or daughter would say, you know, dad's getting meaner and meaner as he gets older and older. Uh, more and more narrow. More and more, uh, he's watching Fox News all the time and it's angry. <laughs> now, I'm sorry about that. But, uh, you know... <laughs> Would you like it if your kid said, my dad, as he gets older and older, my mother, as she gets older and older, is getting meaner and meaner and meaner, more and more self-centered, more and more of this. Wouldn't it be great if someone said of you, as dad gets older, he gets better and better, kinder and kinder, more and more fun, uh, more mellow, more gentle, more joyous. See, uh, that's what I think Miss Muir said. She, I would trust God more. So I would have that joy. And I love the line with Father O'Callaghan. As we grow in grace, and as we grow in age, may we grow in grace. I guess those would be two things I'd love to say. Yeah, you can't, and don't try to. Uh, you know, uh, really, uh, Mother Teresa had it best. Uh, people asked her, how can you handle all the suffering? And she did say this, because he suffered. He suffered too. And it's funny, she made the comment that People who are suffering are always comforted when they contemplate the fact that Jesus Christ suffered too. And, uh, and I think that is profound. But it's not a resolution of the suffering because it means the suffering doesn't go away. It's just that there's someone that joins you in the suffering. And Jesus Christ joins every child that's suffering. He joins every person that's suffering from injustice because that's the significance of the cross. But thank God for Easter. And thank God that it's not the end of the story. And that also is why the Sisters of Charity and all could continue doing their work with the dying in Calcutta because they knew the story was not over. Even for a dying person, the story's not over. And um, you know, it's interesting. Francis Collins, who wrote this amazing book, The Language of God, starts out his book by telling about how he became a Christian. And I've got to know Francis Collins because he's in Washington, D.C., now head of NIH. And, and I get to be in a meeting with him uh, twice now in the last few years. And I just love that guy. And uh, in his book, uh, Language of God, do you know what made the big difference in his life? He was an atheist. His parents were atheists. He was a doctor and now is getting his Ph.D. in medicine and, and, uh, and in, and in uh, genetics. And he was in a hospital and there was this woman and she was an older lady and she was dying. But when he was with her, as uh, he was just an attending physician. He was, he, he was just in residency. So it means he's at the bottom of the ladder in terms of the doctors in that hospital. And he's with this lady. And he, could not, he couldn't understand why she had so much joy and peace. Because he knew how grave uh, her situation was. And, uh, and he just said to her, you know, you're, you're, you're just amazing. You're just an amazing person. Your, your perspective, I mean, he used a lot of jargon like that. You know, your perspective and your outlook seems so positive and all. And then she said to him, Doctor, do you believe in God? And Francis Collins, who was an atheist, couldn't say no. And he said to her, I don't know. And you know, that day, he was so struck with 
what this woman had that he didn't have. And, oh, yeah, he said, I don't know. And then she says, well, I do. <laughs> she didn't scold him or anything. She says, I do. And then she died soon afterward. But he, he, if you read his book, he went that very day and went to a Methodist church. He was at Johns Hopkins. And he went by a Methodist church and the door was open. And he went in there and he said to the pastor, can you help me uh, study Christianity? And the guy says, well, here's a book by C.S. Lewis. And he gave mere Christianity. And the rest is history. It's so interesting, though. That woman, just she was suffering. And yet he saw that she wasn't alone. And he felt alone. But she was not alone. And it was kind of a, the witness coming from a suffering person that just literally melted him. You have to read the language of God. This man, by the way, Francis Collins, may, may get the Nobel Prize. Because, you know, he is the one who broke the code of cystic fibrosis. He broke the genetic code. He and his researchers, which could be uh, one of the best things that ever happened for little kids in American medicine. And uh, now he's the head of NIH, of course. And our President Obama chose him to be the head of the most powerful scientific research institution in the whole world, the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C. That's Francis Collins. And he's a really wonderful Christian guy. But, you know, the turning point was that lady who was suffering, who said, I believe in God. I don't know. I just I love that part of that story. We are out of time. Let's thank Earl for joining us this evening. Hey. Hey. Would you uh, stand and we will finish with a closing song? And Earl, be, before we do, would you would you just pray for us? Yeah, sure. It'd be great. Lord, thank you for uh, this convergence group and for John and for all these young men and women here. I, it's such a joy for me to be able to be with them and to, and to see what's happening in their lives. And uh, just, Lord, bless them, bless me, bless us all uh, so that we'll trust you more and that as we grow in age, we'll grow in grace. In your name we pray. Amen.